Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the story within the panel. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with me is our other co-host. I'm Drew. How's it going? Yo, yo, yo. So, today, we, uh, we're going to go over something a little different. We're going to go over something we've both been reading a little bit about. And uh, so, before we go into it, we want to... We want to give a little bit of background information. Um, well, okay, let me introduce the book that we went over, first of all. was We went over Joker, Killer Smile by Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. And colored by Jordi Belair. Co- colored by Jordi Belair. And the thing about it is Joker, Killer Smile is part of the DC initiative called Black Label. So, Drew, can you tell us a little bit about Black Label. What is it? What's the uh, what's the underlying ethos behind it? Well, first and foremost, I think it's a dumb name. <laughs> Pretty dumb imprint, honestly. Um, it's you don't like the be... fact that it's like top shelf liquor. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, uh, Johnny Walker? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, because good comics. Should ruin your life, like alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if there's a comic book equivalent of an alcoholic, I'm pretty sure you and I are that thing. That's a, you know what? That's pretty good. I mean, I would have gone with the fact that we're probably closer to the comic book equivalent of meth addicts, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or crack fiends, <laughs> or crack fiends. But I'll take alcoholic. Yeah, yeah. Al- alcoholics. Uh, it's a refined addiction. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because you need. Well, I was gonna say you need money to buy Johnny Walker, but you need money to buy drugs too. That's true, and well, 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 being an alcoholic is more respectable than being a junkie. True, true. But oddly enough, I will break into somebody's home. And steal things from them in order to get money to buy more comics. <laughs> we're, so, we are the kind of guys that we have we have piles of books that piles of comics that we haven't read yet, and yet we're always fiending for more comics. We're constantly going online and looking for sales and deals. Yeah. Anytime we hear of a sale at a store, we got to check it out. Yeah. There's just Every no time- end to it. Every time I see a child walking around with a comic, I snatch it out of his hand. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of something to top that, but uh, I'm not really sure I can come up with anything that Trump's having, you know. Are you truly a fiend, Drew? Are you truly a fiend or aren't you? (laughs) You know... I thought I was, but now I'm, I'm going to have to go home and take a hard, long look at myself in the mirror and ask myself, do I really want this life? You haven't lived until you've snatched a comic out of a child's hands. <laughs> well, at least it's good to know that some kids are still reading comics. Okay, okay. It's, it's a little sad to know that... Uh, <laughs> grown men are pushing them down and grabbing their stuff but well i was well, gonna what? say i was gonna say that's a joke but we've been to enough conventions where i've seen grown men do some pretty disgusting things in the name of comics yeah to, to kids and yeah to to 
to people that, for all intents and purposes, should be the lifeblood of comics to 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 children who whom you should be nourishing to read more comics. And I've seen uh, people who are peddling their wares, and they could care less about that. So. Yeah, you, you just reminded me of uh, a story. I, I might have even shared this before on an older episode, but it's just something that always stood out to me. But when we were at Lee's Comics this one year, uh, I don't know, it was, it was probably at least like three or four years ago, but during their uh, summer sale when they have the tent set up out in the parking lot and, and they have all the long boxes filled with quarter bin comics. Yeah. And people are just crowding those, man. You know how you know how it is. Like there's, yeah, it's a couple tables, and there's maybe like, uh, I don't know, sixteen or or twenty long boxes, and it's they're all packed in tight. Yeah, and it's wild out there. It, it, it's like, it's like feeding time, and and the the mama dog only has so many open nipples, you know, and every every little pup is trying to find a nipple yep. to jump on and. That's what it's like, and and they're just shoving each other out of the way, and you get some uh, big old sweaty men, just kind of uh, you know throwing their weight around to lay claim to a long box. And yeah. this one time, I remember there was this this little boy who's probably like eight or ten, no more than ten, but I remember he was he was trying to look in a long box, man. But this this guy, this older guy, was like you know, hogging it basically, but there was, there was like a long box that was open, but the guy that was looking at the long box next to it, he was so big, he was taking up too much space, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that boy, he was like trying to just reach in. His mom was just standing a little bit behind him, uh, you know, just being a mom. Yeah. And, and then I could hear him talking to his mom about trying to look for, he was saying something like, I'm trying to find some Spider-Man comics. Uh, and, and, uh, there weren't too many Spider-Man comics or anything, but I remember the uh, the guy next to him, he was just like, the guy didn't even like care about him or anything. You know, he was just like, I'm going to take my time looking through this big box of comics. And yeah. I don't care if this kid can't reach the comics in the back because he's too small. I'm just going to, I have this spot, you know, so me first. And yeah. that kind of thing, where it, just, it just makes me look at that. And I'm like, for real, man, is that how you're gonna treat a kid at a comic book store? Seriously. You're just gonna try and get yours first. Like, yeah. What What is the point of that, man? I don't understand that. Like, why can't yeah. you just be like, "Oh, hey, kid, uh, you you want some room to look at these comics, or here's some Spider-Man comics that I found. You can you can grab these ones if you want." But show a little bit oh, of consideration. <laughs> Seriously, it's <laughs> just know? a kid. Uh, I I don't I understand mean, it's that, man. Like that, comic book give... fans. Yeah, they just give comic books a bad rap. They give comic book fans a bad rap. Yeah, and I, the thing is, I bet you that that guy was probably one of those guys that tries to find uh, key issues, key issues, and tries to flip them. You know, he's he, he's yeah. probably looking into that quarter bin, hoping against hope that he'd f- come across, stumble across something rare or something. Yeah. It would be worth like five bucks or whatever, so he could flip it. That guy's a vulture. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I do not like people like that. Yeah, agreed. So I mean, not to go on too much of a tangent, but it reminds me of this. That one time, I was uh, 
I was, it might have been even that same sale. I know it was at least for sure, but I was looking for this comic. Uh, Grant Morrison and uh, Daniel Mora, I think. Was, yeah, uh, that's right. Dan Mora. Dan Mora. They did an episode or issue of uh, Klaus. It's a, it's, a, it's a Christmas comic that they put out like every year. And, you know, it, it's, it's a one-issue special. So I remember I was like, standing next to this dude and he was like digging through the box and i saw him like pass up three copies of this book and i was like oh if you don't want those i'm gonna take one so i grabbed it but i noticed there was like a small nick on it so i went uh so when i grabbed it the dude he was like oh he he saw my interest in it and he picked up the other two copies he picked up the other two copies <laughs> and then I asked him, I was like, Oh, you mind if I trade for one of the other ones? Cause this one's got a Nick and the guy, you can tell that he was, he was like, no, these are mine now. And it was like, in my mind, I was like, you didn't even know anything about these comics until you saw that I was interested in it. And you just, now you just want it just because it's a number one issue. Yeah, it's. it's he, uh, did he even uh, say anything to you? Did he did he react or respond to you, or did he just ignore you? He responded to me. He he gave me a look, and he, you could tell that he was come like fumbling with the words to come up with some sort of excuse to tell me that he didn't want to trade. But at that point, like once I had gotten that vibe from him, I was just, I was over it. I was like, keep your comic, man. Whatever. <laughs> I was just. I was pretty disgusted with him when he Maybe did that. he needed two copies because he had to give them to his girlfriend, dude. Uh, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of doubt it. I, I, I wholeheartedly doubt it. <laughs> dude, it's it's people like that though that that just frustrate the crap out of me when it comes to comics because because those guys. That's that's basically like the speculator, you know. And it, yeah. it just reminds me of um how nowadays there are these apps. I f I can't recall the name of the specific app off the top of my head right now, but it, it's it's just something I I find despicable. But it, it's an app that talks about hot comics. Yeah. Like every every week, it'll you check it. I think you might even have to pay a subscription fee. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But uh. It, it tells you like what's hot and stuff, like all the new releases, like first appearances of if there's some random first appearance of some character that will never be significant for the next, you know, foreseeable future, it's a potential hot comic. And then people will swoop in at stores and just grab as many copies of the can to flip them on eBay. Yeah, no, but yeah, exactly. And like, the... like a couple months ago when a uh, punchline came out in that random issue of batman or whatever it was it was a big deal to those people <laughs> yeah but the thing that's stupid is that that issue and issues like that end up selling out at the store so the people that actually collect the series to read it they're just straight out of luck yeah they're screwed yeah yeah or that uh, time when a uh, spider bite came out remember spider bite yeah and well it's i'm pretty sure it's not a thing anymore i'm pretty sure no <laughs> one talks about it but everybody bought that issue because they thought that he was going to be the next Miles Morales or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I could go into that as well. Like, from what I remember of the story, uh, I want to say that it wasn't even 
a story about like Spider-Man's sidekick. It was one of those stories, you know, spoiler, but it was one of those stories that was about a kid in a hospital who dreamt about being Spider-Man's sidekick. And for a day he got to do that. And so it wasn't like it was a new character. It was just the conceit of the story, you know, but these idiots went into the store thinking that it was like a big deal, you know, like kids going to be the next Thanos or something. (laughs) And the other thing I was going to say is that app that you were talking about, like some people could even argue that um, it's an app that artificially, uh, it artificially boosts the profile of a lot of comics. Cause I think they, I feel like they've got, some sort of deal with i remember the article saying that they had like some sort of deal with some of the publishers didn't they or or Uh, i can't remember but it wouldn't surprise me yeah it's 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 totally scummy (laughs) it's totally scummy yeah yeah definitely absolutely scummy so anyway the latest thing that happened was uh you hear about uh the last ronin number one a couple of teenage mutant ninja turtles yeah what about it? What happened? Well, it was a book that came out that was heavily speculated upon and ended up selling out at most stores to the point where, where uh, you know, people that actually wanted to read a Turtles comic, yeah, they've either got to wait for a second printing or they're just going to forget about it and not be able to read it. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it sucks, man. People it's like the that sort of be- yeah, it's the sort of behavior that totally uh, disenfranchises like real fans. Like I'm not a, a a fan of the idea of gatekeeping or whatever. <laughs> like that's something that I don't really care about. But when like these trends and behaviors affect it so that people who have genuine affection for the product end up, you know, not being able to read it, it's it's messed up, man. <laughs> that, yeah. That is a genuinely messed up thing. It is. You know? Those I mean, people just, should be gate kept out of comics. Yeah. They should be drowned like rats. <laughs> <laughs> and you know that it was definitely speculation for when it came to uh, the last Ronin number one because, dude, even the day before the issue was released, people were selling it on eBay for like 20 or 25 bucks and it, it, it was a thicker comic with the different dimensions i think it was a nine dollar comic yeah but even the the day it was released you know people were selling it for 20 something bucks already so it obviously there was, was something in, that was in demand yeah 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 there was word out there for sure Ugh. it's something that i'm just gonna wait for the hardcover man when they make a hardcover of that I'll, I'll i'll buy that yeah but uh, as far as the issues go, like that, that, that right there is a good reason why buying issues off the racks on a weekly basis isn't fun. Yeah, because you're gonna you're gonna get screwed. Yeah, yeah. They actively work against people like us who just want to read comics. Yeah, like I look. Here's the thing, man. Like, if you're gonna, even if you're gonna. If you think you're buying it because it's worth something, I I would say this much, man. Just buy the rest of the series. Be consistent in your purchasing, you know? Because if you're just going to buy it just for that one issue, like, you're you're truly a parasite. 
Yeah, and it it's bad for comics in the long run. You know, yeah. if you the way that comics work, stores have to order their cop. They make their orders for the copies. Uh, you know, several months in advance. So let's say a store orders fifty copies of of issue one, and you know, they probably order maybe. 40 or 30 issues copies of issue two and issue three but let's say issue one sells out all 50 copies sell out in a day and they're like whoa this is a hot comic we got to order more copies of this so then when issue four comes around they order like 70 copies because that's how much demand they had but then but then nobody ends up buying it because because the only people that bought issue one were the speculators and they weren't going to buy issues two or three or four and the people that wanted to read it missed issue one so they're like if i don't have issue one why am i gonna buy any more of it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so yeah if even if you're gonna buy it as a speculator and you know i hate you for it but <laughs> but if you're gonna do it then be consistent buy the rest of the series <laughs> i don't even know how we got on that topic i think you asked me about black label <laughs> I asked you about Black Label, and then I, uh, oh no, and then we talked about how we're comic fiends, and uh, it went from there to a discussion about how I stole comics from kids, and then (laughs) it just went into a diatribe about how we hate speculators. (laughs) You know, I have more respect for somebody who steals comics from little kids than from a speculator. I have respect for for myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I, I wish you could find a kid who was a speculator and steal his comics. I would be into that. I would I would push his face into the mud, steal his comic, <laughs> laugh at him, and then kick some mud in his face. It just you know, I would just it'd be a real great way to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Going back to the uh, original back question. Black label. Back to the black label. DC black label. It's DC's imprint that arose after they discontinued Vertigo. And I have to say that I I think black label is a dumb idea. Uh, it's, like we said, it's a stupid name. Secondly, it's not Vertigo, man. Vertigo it's not. is one of the best imprints of all time. Like, so many vertigo books over the course of its existence all like almost all of them were great and even the ones that weren't too great they were at least interesting man they were you could tell that there was something unique about each and every vertigo title they, they were doing a lot stuff of creative risks and yeah they were doing stuff that was creative whereas with with black label you look at just go to wikipedia right now and look at the uh, books that are published under Black Label. And all you have is a bunch of different Batman books, Joker books, Harley Quinn books, maybe a couple Wonder Woman books. Like, I feel like the point... Well, okay, I feel like the the underlying ethos of Black Label is that we want to do comics for adults or mature comics. Like, even when... So, even when they put out the the first title that they had what was that first title it was batman damned and what was it known for it was batman's known, penis exactly it was known <laughs> like it was a big deal because they drew batman's wiener in there and speculators bought that issue yeah so i mean it's 
it's it's mature in the most superficial way possible. It's not emotionally mature. It's just gratuitously mature, you know? <laughs> like Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So it so for them to say that oh it's it's an imprint that's designed to do to make comics for a more mature and older clientele or you know uh yeah i, I guess clientele would be the word or the uh, you know demographic mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. like by calling it black label they imply that it's going to be this uh premier line right like it's really going to be yeah uh something prestigious. fancy prestigious but it like the the comics that they've put out clearly aren't that at all there's there doesn't seem to be much of anything that's uh that that so far uh, well no that's not true i mean there there are a couple of things here or there but by and large i would say what they have put out has been underwhelming yeah yeah not only is it underwhelming a lot of the stuff even even uh something like the book we're going to talk about today i feel like it could have easily been just a DC comic, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I, if you, I, if you took out a couple of the, the swear words, yeah, there's nothing in here that would constitute it really being a black label book. You know, they could have, it would have made no difference if they just published it under the normal. It could have DC. been a story arc. <laughs> yeah. It totally yeah. could have been. Yeah. So it, it's, it just shows how, how DC is, has been, they they're just too scared to take risks nowadays, and it, it's a bad sign for for their company. It's a bad sign for for comics in general. I would say, yeah. All they're doing is really relying on the Batman name to to sell these books. Yeah, yeah. Like out of all the books that they published, so many of them are either Batman, Harley, or Joker. Like yeah. you don't, nobody nobody really needs that many of those books. You know, like. Give us more stuff like the question. Give us more venom. (laughs) (laughs) We've had way too much Batman and Harley Quinn and Joker. Give us more venom. (laughs) Absolute venom. (laughs) (laughs) The King in Black is that uh is that is Marvel. So there's that. If you need your symbiote fix. All right, awesome. <laughs> Give me that sweet, sweet oat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the point is, I think Black Label is pretty meaningless. It, there's nothing about it that stands out other than the fact that the yeah. books they publish are in that special format. Yeah. Kind of a like a magazine size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Squarish type of format. And yeah, the production value is nice compared to your typical twenty-page issue. Yeah, but in terms of say... yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead and finish. Your no, I was just gonna say uh, in terms of content, it's it's exactly the way that you mentioned it earlier, where it's they're not mature in terms of uh, like the emotional content, but they're mature in the sense of being gratuitous. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like if M&M's put out like a high-end product, a high-end version of M&M's, but the selling point was now with 40% less rat feces, 
<laughs> I mean, like, great. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Actually, it could be with 40% more rat feces. <laughs> that might be a more apt analogy. <laughs> uh, so, do you want to talk about the creative team uh, behind um, the, uh, the book that we're going to talk about today? Uh, the book as I mentioned earlier, is Joker Killer Smile, and we've, we're going to be the creative talent behind it include Jeff Lemire, and Andrea Sorrentino, and Jordi Belair. Steve Wands as letterer. Can't forget the letterer, man. you got to give the letterer some love. Yeah. Edited by Chris Conroy. So this is a... We just gave Black Label a hard time. The only reason I picked up this book was because of the creative team. Yeah, same here. Like, Jeff Lemire, uh, I think he's probably someone that we've mentioned uh, here and there throughout the, the lifespan of this podcast, but he's someone who we both generally have a lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he usually does a lot of great work. Um, like, our libraries are just full of his stuff. Uh, like, yeah, I, I can just name just a few of his comics but uh we mentioned trillium on another podcast uh, yep. sweet tooth is, is something that we have a lot of affection for sweet um, tooth and trillium were both vertigo books yeah yeah uh trillium was i want to uh, well it wasn't the last of the vertigo books but it was probably closer towards the end of the vertigo line yeah, and, and actually, you know, one of the things that kind of stinks now is that whenever they do new printings of classic Vertigo black books, label on it. yeah, they've got the black label logo on it. So, so if somebody goes to the store and buys a, a recent copy of Watchmen or something, it's going to be a black label copy. That's that's lame. Yeah, that's that's a smack in the face. Yeah, and I, I say that with full knowledge that Watchmen was not originally a Vertigo book to begin with, but but still, you know, it's like. You don't want to own a copy of Watchmen or, or Sandman or Preacher or whatever with a black label logo on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bastardization. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that was just another uh, side rant. <laughs> yeah. But Jeff Lemire and uh, Andrea Sorrentino in particular, they've done a couple of comics together. Uh, they've done... Green Arrow, they had a lengthy run on Green Arrow together. And they've also done uh, their own creator, own comic called Gideon Falls over at Image. So I haven't read all of Gideon Falls. I think the last issue of that either just came out or it's coming out uh, very soon. Uh, I'm not sure if it wrapped up yet. Uh, read the first couple of trades of that. Um, and haven't caught, I haven't caught up and with their Green Arrow series. I read a good chunk of it. I read at least half of it and then honestly kind of lost interest. Um, mm. What about you, man? What, what's your experience with uh, their collaborations? Um, so I'm collect. I have been collecting Gideon Falls, but because I'm waiting to get all of it, I haven't read it. But. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's another example of Jeff Lemire's name being on something, and um, you know, I just you, fell you into buy it, it out of trust. 
Yeah, exactly. I have faith. I have faith. Um, in regards to uh, the Green Arrow, I've probably had a similar experience as you. I I remember reading. I I don't think I read half of it, but I read maybe like one trade, maybe two, before I I just kind of fell off it. Um, yeah, I mean. Okay, it's, I don't know how to put this. To Jeff Lemire. It isn't. It isn't. I, I personally didn't think that his Green Arrow was a good representation of what he's capable of. That's that's fair. That's that's an accurate way to put it. I was going to say that... I don't know if... So the Green Arrow that he did was... I want to say it was the New 52 Green Arrow? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So I don't know if, like, maybe I have, like, some sort of internal bias that... It was a couple years after the New 52, because he didn't start with issue one. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I... uh, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. It looks like he started with issue 17. Okay. Well, I mean, like I said, like, I, I, I don't know if, like, just by the very virtue of it being part of the New 52, even if it was 17 issues in, like, if... There was a part of me that naturally just kind of had an abhorrence towards it, or, yeah, or whatever. It's, it's it's more what what basic what it basically boils down to is that he lost before he began. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there there were a bunch. Okay, I, I don't want to go too deep into this, but no, we can just... disrespect the New Fifty Two all day, man. That that was some <laughs> dumb comics. Well. Okay, the thing about Green Arrow was they de-aged him and and I you know what 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 Jeff Lemire did on his Green Arrow, I I would even go as far as to say that one you're right when you say it's not him doing his best work and two I would even say that what they did in Green Arrow, like the the plot elements that I do remember were they felt pretty derivative in, in the sense that I'm pretty sure that was what, what he had written was you could compare it to something like Immortal Jeff Iron Johns, Fist. Jeff Johns, Green Lantern or Iron Fist by, you know, Brubaker and Fraction, you know, like it just wasn't an Aja. And Aja, right. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't done in a way that was nearly as, well, it might be better than Green Lantern by Jeff Johns, but it certainly yeah, it wasn't was better as, than that. Yeah, but it certainly wasn't better than, uh, you know, Iron Fist. By, yeah, I, I brought up the Iron Fist connection because I, I thought that their Green Arrow was pretty derivative of of Iron Fist. Yeah. Because um, one of the things that was introduced in Iron Fist was each there were these different uh, the seven cities of heaven. Yeah, kind of like yeah. how Iron Fist power originates from Kunlun, and all there are these other uh, like sister cities Mystical that each have cities. their own version yeah. of uh, an Iron Fist. Not exactly, it's a not champion. called an Iron Fist, but they're they're basically immortal weapons. So they are all yeah. they're all like champions with uh, martial arts powers. Yeah. Whereas uh, with Green Arrow, there was this whole storyline about these different clans that that uh, represented different weapons and, and yeah. Ollie somehow was the one who had the bow and arrow. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it tried to do that thing where it reimagined, you know, all these characters that, you know, were known for specific types of weapons, and it tried to build a mythology around it, but it just wasn't, it just didn't hit, like, yeah, I can't say that, I can't say that it was anything that did anything for me. And the other thing, dude, um, and th- this is going to sound messed up as heck, but I, again, I, I mean no disrespect, but Andrea Sorrentino's art, I, I really didn't like his art in Green Arrow. Like, yeah. it, it was kind of art where, and I've seen his art in other comics too, like, he did some Marvel stuff. Uh, I don't remember if it was before or after the Green Arrow, but uh, I remember he did some X-Men comics with uh, Bendis. But every time I would open a comic with his art in it, I would think, just from glancing at it, I would think, hey, this is pretty cool. You know, like he's got a cool style and it reminds me of other artists that I really like, like David Aja, you know? Yeah. Somebody along those lines. And the difference was when I would read, when I would actually read the Sorrentino comics, I just found that his art wasn't, as clear in terms of its storytelling. Like there were definitely a lot of points where I was trying to figure out what I was looking at just from a logical perspective. Like how did the panel to panel progression take place? And when I have to work that hard just to follow the dialogue or the story, that just takes me out of it, you know? Um, And I I felt like he had, he could draw like cool poster styles, cool poster style art. If he if he really just wanted to draw, you know, like he could just draw a really pretty picture. But when you're trying to read twenty pages of content of continuity of storytelling, things got a little bit confusing and and murky. And and that's I just never got into his art. Yeah, I I, I can see what you mean. Like there are a couple of panels here and there where I was looking at things and I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool design. Um, like, I remember in his Green Arrow run, uh, I think he drew Count Vertigo or something. And I was looking at, you know, the Vertigo effect that he was drawing. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'd probably say... I, I will say this. I do think that he's somebody who definitely has a lot of room to grow and uh, he's probably somebody I'd keep an eye out on just 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 to see what his work is going to look like a couple of years down the road to see if he you know really kind of improves it and excels to yeah like whole new heights yeah and and here's the thing for me is that all of his comics I've read since the first time I found his work in Green Arrow. Uh, like I, I thought it was kind of derivative. He's I thought he was a poor man's David Aja. Maybe uh, you could see a little bit of a poor man's uh, Jay Lee in there. Mm-hmm. But I could recognize that he he had potential. You know, like he like you said, some of his layouts were pretty clever. Like at least he was trying stuff that. Not a whole lot of other mainstream superhero comics artists were doing, you know. Yeah. So you, yeah. you gotta you gotta respect the the uh, intent. Yeah. And 
And I would still take that over uh, something that was just cookie cutter, you know? Like, I'll still take those Green Arrow comics art over, you know, like a Tom Grummet or a Mark Bagley or something, you yeah. know? <laughs> but with uh, even as, as time has progressed, though, with something like Gideon Falls, I still kind of felt like the same thing thing you know like I, I still kind of felt that his art I could follow it but there were still t- for the most part but there were still times here and there when I would get uh I would just I don't know there was just something in that wasn't smooth about it yeah there was there was just something about the the, the storytelling that I thought he could have done it a little bit more clearly so that it'd be just easier to to read like the flow would be smoother um, Actually, i mean I don't, I don't have an issue of gideon falls with me at hand so i can't really point to anything specific but that was just the overall uh, impression i got right so you did read some of gideon falls right yeah i read the first couple trades uh, and then i haven't had a chance to borrow the rest from the library because uh, of the pandemic right right well oh the other thing i was going to add was um they did do another book together. I just checked. They did Old Man Logan for Marvel. So Jeff Lemire and uh, Andrea Sorrentino did work on that as well. Oh, okay. So, you know, these are two guys who I want I, I want to assume that they, they must have some fondness for one another. To, yeah, yeah, they obviously like, respect each other. Yeah, exactly, to work together. Yeah, and I've uh, read interviews where Lemire's pretty uh, – positive about his collaborator you know he's got a lot of great things and that that's why they want to yeah. work with each other yeah 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 nobody, nobody forced them to co-create gideon falls together you know like they they <laughs> wanted to do something <laughs> together right 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 <laughs> i can't believe i gotta work with this guy <laughs> yeah what a jag off <laughs> well, i'll do it for the money <laughs> uh man um yeah do you uh yeah like i mentioned that we we've read quite a bit of jeff lemire's work uh you know there's our our libraries have no shortage of things by him um Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm kind of curious if you could break down like what what is it about jeff lemire's writing style that you you find appealing it's got to be the emotional core, the emotional honesty and sincerity that's just inherent in all of his best work, I would say. Yeah. He does a really good job. And I think probably what he's known for is writing stories about fathers yeah, and also stories about uh, the country and maybe even uh, Canada. Yeah, yeah. Something, something more on the rural side of of uh in terms of settings he he tends to favor rural kind of stories that take place in the countryside um or in more isolated locations and a lot of thematic content throughout a lot of his best works a lot a lot of it tends to be about uh fathers and specifically fathers and sons i i would say yeah i i definitely agree with that like all of his all of my favorite things by him like 
like with other writers, if I was to say that, you know, they're just themes that they go back to over and over again, maybe with other writers, I might, <clears throat> I'm, I might catch myself saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, it, I'm kind of tired of seeing that from them. But with Jeff Lemire, like, the, it's like you said, the emotional core is really real there. And you, it's just so powerful and with a lot of his stories, it's, yeah, I don't know how else to put it, except there's, there's, he, he knows how to write the anguish behind failed father and son relationships, yeah, you know, yeah. or broken relationships. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to get too like personal or anything. Like I've never, I don't know how I would really define my relationship with my parent, but you know, reading something like that, like it made me believe that what his characters were going through was genuine. Yeah. You know, totally. it was believable and it, you know, I, I felt it as I was reading it. So, uh, that in and of itself should be a testament to the power of his writing. Totally. And, and just to be clear, I wouldn't even say that all of his, like, I wouldn't even say that all of his stuff that he writes uh, his creator on stuff rotates around those themes or concepts because he, he does write like a variety of different themes. Um, and he, and he doesn't just have like one pet theme that he goes to over yeah, and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause like we, totally. we talked about Trillium uh, in one of our previous episodes when we talked about uh, our romance comic recommendations and, and yeah. that didn't really have anything to do with totally. fathers and sons too much. Yeah. Um, like he's, he's done some other science fiction comics like sentient from TKO. Mm. I would definitely recommend that. That one's kind of more about, uh, an artificial intelligence being like a mother to a group of children, yeah. but it, it, that one is, uh, very touching as well. And he's, he's obviously written a bunch of superhero comics. Yeah. Um, I, I, I gotta be honest. I don't think his best work is his mainstream superhero stuff. Mm like the stuff that he, he did at Marvel. I haven't read all of it, <clears throat> uh, but some of the stuff that I have read didn't, it definitely didn't draw me in as much as his own stuff did. Like, I, I think in terms of his Marvel stuff, my favorite that he did was his Hawkeye comics. His Hawkeye was good. I liked his Sentry comic. I oh, I haven't that read was... that. I got to check it out. No, I think I, well, I loaned it to you, but. Uh, oh, did I read it? Yeah. I don't remember if I read it. Yeah. If I, I did read it, 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 I guess I forgot. I thought it was good. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna go as far as to say that it makes it in the top, you know, ten of all of you know of his works that I love, but um, I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed it enough where after I read it, I was like, oh, I'm definitely keeping this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean. And- when it comes to his DC stuff too, like a lot of the DC stuff didn't really stand out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like even, I, even something long that he did like animal man, that one. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, it's going to, this is going to sound uh, like slander, but it's, it's, it's not meant to be disrespectful, I, but I, I thought his animal man was a little bit derivative as well. Uh, it just kind of felt like, a watered down Jamie Delano run of animal man, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think I just kind of lost interest in it before I got to the conclusion. And then there were things he wrote like 
Frankenstein or or uh, I think that Superboy run. Like just things that didn't really grab me. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I had forgotten about that Superboy run. I ended up collecting that from the quarter bins. and. Yeah, I think I read yours. Yeah, I ended up putting that for sale. <laughs> like it, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Um, in terms of his personal works, yeah, like uh, Plutona is something else that I would mention where it's really, it's kind of, a murder mystery slash, you know, um, not horror, but, or I guess thriller. Uh, so it's, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. With, yeah. It's got a superhero in it too. Yeah. And it's got kids. Yeah. So that's, that's something it's kind that of I like, really like from It's him. kind of like the Black Dahlia meets Goonies. Oh, God. <laughs> Why are you always trying to poke the bear, Drew? <laughs> For all you listeners, Albert hates it whenever uh, he hears a comparison where it's something meets something, like two yeah. two things just as a shorthand. He hates those kind of comparisons. I just think it's very lazy. I think it's incredibly lazy marketing to 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 say like like <clears throat> in recent years. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm gonna get on a soapbox a bit, but. Uh, I understand the value of language and uh, the value of association. So um, I've found more appreciation in recent years in people being able to articulate things in their own words as opposed to coming up with these lazy shorthands, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever someone says something like, oh, it's like, you know... Game of Thrones meets Hunger Games. Yeah, it's like, exactly. You know, I, I, I don't need... Like, I get it. It's easy because in my mind, I've ever, like, it does all the work for me. But I, I would rather that you put some effort into it and just explain it to me. I'll, I'll give you the paragraph. Just explain it to me and, like, win me over. Put a little bit of effort into it, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to push you down the stairs. <clears throat> and, like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm done. I, I'm not going to go into that too much anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> I could go into like I have more thoughts on that, but I'm, I, that's that's where I'm going to draw the line. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <sighs> uh, I will say that when it comes to my favorite Jeff Lemire superhero comics, outside of Hawkeye, it's definitely got to be his Valiant stuff. Oh, uh, I like Black Hammer a lot. Black Hammer is awesome. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about Black Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Black Hammer, his Valiant stuff, and Hawkeye. Those are his best superhero his- comics. I would probably even say his entire Black Hammer universe is pretty cool. Like, yeah. not, not just Black Hammer, the main book, but all the miniseries that spin out from, from it, they, they've all been pretty good stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Like, now that I think about it, his uh, it does really feel like his, his creator-owned stuff is probably his A-game. Although... Although I will say I do have all of his, I want to say I think I have almost all of his Marvel stuff, and I am looking forward to look reading his his Moon Knight and his um, Old Man Logan's. I'm I'm curious what he has to say there. Uh, I'm missing one volume of his Extraordinary X Men, and that might be it. Yeah, that's a good amount of stuff you got. Yeah. Well. 
technically I'm missing his immortal that the one issue of his immortal Hulk the uh, the one that just place. came out yeah the threshing place is that what it was called I think so it was a one shot yeah I I didn't get that so I gotta go find that but other than that for people who are interested in checking out Jeff Lemire I'll probably say the best place to start with is his creator owned work yeah um you know, I'm, looking... I'm, I'm even going to recommend uh, stuff that I haven't read yet, like Essex County. I have a copy of it, and I flip through it every so often, but I just haven't gotten around to, to reading it. But it's a, it's a book that's gotten a lot of acclaim. It's, it's a thick, really thick uh, graphic novel. And I just know I'm going to love it. And I think that's why I've been putting it off so long, is just because yeah. it's something I want to... Like just sit down and really devote myself to devote my attention to and pour myself into it. Um, but another one would be uh, the Underwater Welder. That's a great one. Yeah. Lost Dogs, the Nobody, obviously a Tooth. Royal City. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to read my Royal City. I still haven't read my copies. Yeah. But yeah, Sweet Tooth is awesome. We talked about Trillium before. Uh, I really liked The Nobody. His Valiant stuff is great. Check out uh, The Valiant, which was a yeah. four issue miniseries he did with Matt Kint and Paolo Rivera. And also Black Hammer stuff. Yeah, and he did a lot of Bloodshot comics yeah. with Valiant. He had a pretty solid run on Bloodshot. I want to say like. It was like 30 like issues, probably. 30? Okay, 30 issues. Maybe maybe more, I think, because he did some one-shots in a miniseries. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's a he's a terrific writer when, when he's, like, on his A-game, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and even... I love it when he uh, draws his own stuff, too. Yeah. He, he's got a really unique style where it's not realistic, but maybe at first glance someone might look at it and... It might look simplistic, but I think it's gorgeous in its simplicity, to be honest. Yeah. Um, like, Maybe the easiest thing to start with when it comes to Jeff Lemire is Sweet Tooth. So yeah, I'd say yeah. check out Sweet Tooth first. I, I think yeah. they're making a TV series based on it. I believe they are. Uh, I don't I don't remember too many of the details. Like With things like that, I, I, I guess I just wait till it comes out. I don't. I'm not the kind of comics fan who obsesses over when it does come out or whatever. Like, if I we have the come... comics, man, we already have the comics. Who cares about the TV show? Yeah, I mean, if I happen to come across it when you know news about it, then great. But I don't think. <sighs> yeah. I, well, okay. Another soapbox to get on, but I think I'm just at the point in my life where there's just so much stuff that they're converting to television that. I'm not until until it's like in front of me. Like I'm not gonna really spend my time and energy like obsessing over it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that's not something we obsess over. We obsess over getting more comics. Camics, got camics. So let's talk about the comic that we were intending to talk <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, so we've mentioned it a couple of times. It's Joker Killer Smile. And 
Uh, I'm trying to find the a way to put it in brief, but essentially, the story is about a psychiatrist who observes the Joker while he's uh, in the asylum, and it's it's a story about how his proximity to the Joker ultimately begins to warp him over time and uh yeah i mean in in brief i i guess that's the best way to put it like are there any points that you think i'm missing drew no that's the basic synopsis uh the the main character's name is dr ben arnell arnell he's the psychologist who tries to he's he basically thinks he can cure the Joker of his insanity or his madness. Yeah. Yeah. And and obviously that doesn't really work out too well for him. And the story ends up being about, um, and this is something that uh, you said right before we uh, started recording, but it's basically a story about when you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes back. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, we, I mentioned that off before the podcast, but it, that, in terms of the impressions that this story left me with, that was probably the the one that leapt out at me the, the, the clearest, the most clearly was, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, so the story focuses on this doctor, Dr. Ben Arnell, and... It starts off with him in a wait a minute, wait a minute. asylum. Before you go on, uh, yeah. So is this the spoiler-free version of the synopsis, or are we are we going to go into it? Yeah, well, let, let's uh, go spoiler-free for uh, a couple minutes, just okay. in case uh, not everyone uh, has read it. Okay. But uh, okay, so we we just explained a little bit about what the plot was. Um, General impression is that this comic is more of a psychological horror comic than it is a superhero comic. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Batman doesn't really show up too much, maybe maybe not even until the end of the second book, uh, if not the third. So you don't even really see Batman too much in, in the comic. There, Like, there was a point in time... When, when, as I was reading it, where I was thinking to myself, oh, this might just be a story about the Joker and this guy, and Batman won't be in it at all. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. On some level, I think that might have been more interesting if they had done that, but... Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, the first three issues comprise the uh, Joker Killer Smile miniseries and then there's a fourth issue included in the hardcover which collects a one-shot epilogue of sorts or a coda to the story which is called batman the smile killer i thought that was kind of a clever title yeah killer smile and you've got the smile killer and it makes sense that batman is the smile killer dude that is that is clever i i didn't realize that until you just brought it up just now i didn't realize that batman was the smile killer (laughs) (laughs) that's funny man that is funny yeah when i I first heard about it 
it, it, it was one of those things that made me chuckle because I was like, that's, it's so obvious. I can't believe nobody ever thought of that before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like so, so good. <laughs> uh, good one. Good one. <laughs> the, the story, I thought overall, I would say I enjoyed it. Um, it, it probably is my favorite mainstream DC work from Jeff Lemire. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'd have to say, uh, I mean, of course I didn't really think too highly of his other DC stuff, but this is closer to approaching the level of his vertigo and his creator own stuff. So I, I definitely think that if he did more superhero comics that were along the lines of Killer Smile, then, you know, the general level of quality of his output in that realm would be much higher. And I thought it was really good how the story wasn't about fisticuffs. It wasn't a story about Batman, uh, you know, beating up the Joker, tracking him down and solving a problem with his fists. But like we said, it's a psychological horror story about the psychologist who tries to delve into the Joker's mind and he ends up, he's the one who ends up biting off more than he can chew. You know, he's hes the one who has to wrestle with this uh, figurative and I guess even a literal madman yeah. in his mind yeah it, it kind of reminds me of that issue of watchmen where the psychologist or psychotherapist i don't know what the proper title is but that psychologist dude tries to interview rorschach thinking he's gonna you know make a really good uh presentation or journal report and win the respect and admiration of his peers after he's able to crack the code of this crazy dude yeah yeah no, that 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 was uh, definitely something that struck me as well. Uh, I like I don't know. Whenever they tell one of these stories where it's about the psychiatrist who you know tries to deconstruct a madman only to be shook to their core in the attempt. I can't help but take that back to Watchmen, like, every time, just because that was the first... I mean, I'm sure there are other stories that did something similar, but that that's probably the most memorable version of that story that I can remember. Yeah, and, and it's certainly every, the most famous instance of that happening in a superhero comic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So whenever I read a story where that's the conceit of it i can't help but go back and think of that issue of watchmen and i can't help but compare it on some level even if it's subconsciously <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's it's just a a simple premise but anytime someone does that premise you just can't help but think of watchmen <laughs> yeah 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 Another thing that I will say, and this does not get into spoilers at all, but I was just going to talk about Sorrentino's art because uh-huh. I actually think this was a revelatory work for him, uh, at least in my eyes, because this comic, more than any of his other comics, 
this this was a clear, smooth read for me. You know, like there was nothing in here where I was confused um, or it took me time to try and decipher uh, the storytelling. Uh, I actually thought his art is leaps and bounds better than anything else I've, I've seen from him, which is weird to think about because he was actually doing this concurrently with Gideon Falls. Don't ask me how. He was so productive. He could do two comics at the same time. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. Uh, I mean, dude obviously has a lot of skill and energy. Um, but, I yeah, I really think that his art in Joker, Killer Smile, is fantastic. It's His, his line still has that quality where it's a little bit, um, I guess, wavy like there's a there's a tremor in how he draws lines like they're not really uh bold or or confident looking but it, it really fits this kind of narrative where a man's mind is breaking apart psychologically so you kind of feel that things are a little bit shaky and and that kind of a trembling feeling in his line work really mm. conveys that uh emotive quality really effectively Yeah, also, man. the coloring, man, like the way that Jordi Belair colored his work. I, I don't remember who colored a lot of his previous comics, uh, but in this one, there's like a, a really good mix of of, of uh, tones because there, there are points where some of the coloring is darker and it, it looks more reminiscent of what I would typically associate with Sorrentino's art, which is dark and moody and murky. But there are also points where there's a lot of whites and even uh, like pastel colors. And for certain scenes, there's even like just really weird impressionistic coloring too. Mm. It, it, it totally brings every facet of the story to life because there are points in the story that, that take place, you know, in, in the real world, like what you're seeing is what you're seeing. And then there's other elements of the story that, that are, uh, like hallucinations or uh, there's even a sequence where there's an illustrated storybook um, and all of it, all of it looks really, really well done. So I'd have to say I'm, I'm very impressed by his artwork here. Like out of all his comics, man, this is my favorite Sorrentino comic by far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't think I'm nearly as analytical as you when it comes to, like, uh, sequential storytelling, but I did enjoy his art here as well. It's good. It's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Girl boobs. Albert Luff. <laughs> <laughs> does some things here with the layouts that are still uh, really typical of his style, where he does inventive stuff that you don't normally see people try but here it it it's still easy to read so that that's what i appreciate and it, it actually adds to the tone and the flavor um yeah you know, we'll, we'll post some pictures of it on on the instagram if if people uh want to check out some of the things that we're referring to but yeah like all it boils down to is this dude's artwork is awesome in this comic yeah i will say that um the storyboard scenes are pretty impressive. I, like it shows his range because it's uh, the storybook, like, the storybook yeah. scene. Yeah, storybook scene. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, you, like just by looking at it and how he traditionally draws, like you wouldn't real, you wouldn't 
at first glance you wouldn't realize that they were the same person you know yeah exactly yeah if this dude wanted to man he could be making a living drawing kids books yeah yeah dude i think he and amir should do a kids book that'd be fun that would be interesting i'd, I'd be curious to see uh what they come up with together they could do a kids book about uh sons and fathers in the countryside. <laughs> yeah yeah i would totally buy that I don't even have I, a kid, and I would I would buy that for a kid. I'd give it to somebody else's kid. Yeah, that hey, I'm I'm behind that, and then I'll probably take it from that kid. <laughs> <laughs> you have any other general spoiler-free thoughts or impressions? Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to be super harsh because I'm a fan of Lemire, but I, yeah, I, I don't think I, this book hit me quite the same way that it hit you. Um, mm -hmm. like I liked it fine, but maybe it's the, it's a case where I'm going to have to sit on it for a couple of days and see what I think after I've mulled it over. Yeah. But overall, I, I can't say that it left as much of an impression on me as any of his other works have, you know, uh, yeah. it's, yeah. it's something that I'm definitely going to have to read again just to see if I can glean additional insights on it just from a second read around. I, I think a big part of it is the fact that I read it and my first impression was, oh, it's one of those stories that's about a psychologist who tries to, you know, uh, tries to understand the Joker, but is, as a product of his efforts, driven mad by the Joker, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and again, I, I can't... I can't read that and not think of the Watchmen issue. And quite frankly, I, I thought that was probably a more effective version of that story. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, I I shouldn't... I don't know. I guess I feel crummy comparing Joker to Alan... I mean, Jeffrey <laughs> to, to Alan Moore, but, you know, it's hard not to make those comparisons even subconsciously um so well it's like if you could drink some black label why would you want to get a two buck chuck well yeah that's true <laughs> unfortunately this black label has 40 percent more rat feces <laughs> <laughs> so i'll probably take the two buck chuck <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even though this comic didn't hit you as hard, especially because it's a Lemire comic and maybe uh, you've got more, I guess, higher expectations for Lemire or you, you've tasted what the best of Lemire is and this isn't as good as that. Mm -hmm. If you if you ignored that aspect of it, would you could you say that overall you enjoyed or you liked this comic or would you still have the same reservations? That's interesting. Um...
Like, if you didn't it's, know that Jeff Lemire wrote yeah. this comic, would you feel the same way? See, that's the thing. So I, that's I. I don't think I can disassociate those two, and mm-hmm. I, I think a large part of it is is what you said, which is I like if the core or if if at the center of Jeff Lemire's work is his emotional core. Um, I've read a bunch of his other books where, again, the emotionality of what he's trying to communicate is just resonant with me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, whether it be about, you know, disappointing father figures or whether it be about, uh, you know, failed relationships or wanting or, you know, the uh, anxiety one gets from, you know, not being not being sure whether they can live up to being a good father, like things like that. Okay. Like that's like, that's the stuff that jumps out at me when I think about his work. Yeah. And I'll I'll even admit there, there are some things in here where he, he taps into a little bit of the emotionality as well. But overall, I would say that it was, it was it was emotionally flat or flatter anyways while I was reading it so I in retrospect thinking about it now um, as I'm talking to you though I mm-hmm. will say that there are bits of emotionality to it uh, what what was the doctor's name again Benjamin yeah I mean there are scenes where you know he's he's interacting with his family uh, like at a later point when, when this big revelation happens. And at that point it's like, Oh, okay. Uh, there's a sense of urgency there. You know, you, 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 I get it. Right. He's, he's trying to, there's, there's, there's something wrong, you know, now that he's realized the reality of his world, there's, there's something wrong and something missing in his life, um, something missing from his relationship with his family. So I get that, but I guess the thing is, it just feels like it all happened so quickly that I didn't really get the chance to really submerge myself in, you know, yeah. It was a little bit abrupt, fast-paced at the end. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I didn't get the chance to, like, submerge myself in that feeling that they were, that they had a real emotional connection to one another. You know? It just felt a little superficial. So, yeah, like, that doesn't really answer your question of, you know, if I knew it wasn't Jeff Lemire, if I had read it on its own, would I have enjoyed it? I... I don't know if I can say that was the case. Like, I I appreciate it because on a technical level, I think Jeff Lemire is excellent, and I I thought he did a good job here. Um, And I thought that uh, Sorrentino did a good job, you know, putting his script to page. Yeah. So that stuff was was good. But, again, like, I, I can't say that I was moved by it. So would you say that you appreciate this comic, but you don't necessarily like it? I think that's fair. I I honestly think that's fair. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but I'd also have to add the caveat that I don't know that I hate it either. I don't think <laughs> I hate it. I'm pretty sure I don't hate it. That's uh, that's a pretty good standard to live by. As long as you don't hate something, that yeah, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I would I would rather be uh, I would rather you feel indifferent towards me, Albert, than feel your hatred against me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that's I'm saying? Good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would rather you ignore my existence and treat me with apathy than know that. You actively hate me, and you're looking to steal all my comics. Yeah, like I want, I I would hate to know that every time that I have a burning piss sensation, I'm thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, just by the very virtue of the fact that Jeff Lemire worked on this, it is something that. At some point, maybe a year from now, I'll probably, I might give it another read just to see. Well, no, I'll probably, I'll definitely give it another read. Maybe not a year, but at some point down the road, just to see if my feelings have changed on it or to see if my my change in perspective can give me new insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, reading it a second time will allow you to take in elements of the story that you weren't paying close attention to the first time around. Sometimes that yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not something that I afford a lot of writers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, honestly, I think there aren't that many superhero comics that really would demand that either, you know, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we read so many superhero comics in our lives, but how many of them, like what percentage of all the superhero comics we read are actually worth rereading. It's probably not very high. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not very high, but this one I think well, is worth let me, rereading. Let me let me correct that. It's not high relative to the number of comics in all existence. Exactly. That's that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. saying. I mean, you and I, we have awesome taste. So a lot of the stuff that we own, the reason we own it is because we know we're going to reread it. Yeah, yeah. At some point. Totally, totally. And our libraries aren't small. Yeah. But you if know, you compared so, our libraries to every superhero comic that's been published, well, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. True that, true that, true that. Okay, so how about uh, diving into spoiler territory now so we can really dissect okay. the story? So for those of you who are listening, if this is something that you intend to read and you don't want it spoiled for yourself... Uh, you know, this is where we bid you a Rivenergy. And <laughs> a Rivenergy. Off Vetersane. Off of Vetersane. I, I don't know what accents I'm doing. I'm I think you tried to... to speak German with a Swedish accent. Or Italian with a German accent. <laughs> 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 or I was doing Borat. I don't know anymore. <laughs> but. Yeah, we this is this is where you would take your part. Uh, but you know, if you want to stick with us and if you don't care about spoilers and you want to hear about how the story ends up and what we have to say about it, please continue on with us. Yeah, and I will say that if you're the type of person that doesn't care about spoilers, um, then this is a good time to continue listening because 
I don't think the story depends on yeah the spoiler like Agreed. The, I don't think there's like a crazy twist that'll harm your enjoyment of it. So if you still plan to read it and you don't care about spoilers, yeah, yeah, I don't think that there's anything so big that happens that yeah you'll be uh, shocked out of your senses. I mean, I will say that at one point I was like, "Is there a twist coming or something?" And then when it got there, I was like, "Oh, oh, that's it." Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> there, there's a twist, but I think you can still enjoy the story even if you know the twist is coming. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's like you said, it's not a twist that like makes or breaks the story. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so let's let's dive into this, man. So the, the first issue starts off with uh the Joker and Dr. Ben in Arkham Asylum of one of the funny things that I I thought when I was reading the story was it felt like Sorrentino tried to draw a handsome looking Joker. You know Did you what? get that impression? I, uh, yeah, uh, like, I mean, I don't think I thought about that overtly until you just mentioned it just now, but, uh, yeah, I get that now that you, uh, mentioned it. He's, he's got a rugged good look to him, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. if you can ignore the, the pasty white face and the green hair and the, yeah. and the, you know, the scar or whatever it is on his mouth, he looks like a normal person. <laughs> Yeah, he very normal, look, actually. Yeah, he doesn't look like a freak like other other comics uh, sometimes portray him to look. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he, he's, he didn't cut off his own skin and wear his mask, <laughs> wear his face as a mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, he did not. <laughs> did you ever think that was cool, Albert? I never thought that was cool. I thought that was uh, an attempt at being edgy, and whenever someone tries to impress me, with being edgy, I yawn. <laughs> I spate upon them. The other thing that uh, jumped out pretty early in the book was how, when Doctor Ben goes back to his house, when he when he goes into uh, to his living room and he sees his wife and his son, above his uh, fireplace, there's a Rorschach blot. Oh yeah, I'm looking at that page right now. I di- I didn't look at it at the time. Which is kind of, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Dude's a psychiatrist and the guy puts a Warshot blotch yeah, right and, in, into yeah. his house. It's it's like, huh, okay. It's, it's a funny detail. And, and I, I feel like it, it's, it probably uh, also points me back to Watchmen. And if you actually look at the page right before that page, the last panel, a there's a smiley face. face. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if that's intentional. It's... Yeah, I wonder if that was something Jeff Lemire wrote, or if that was something uh, Sorrentino put in. Yeah, yeah, it'd be pretty interesting to read the original script to this issue. Yeah. Did you like how uh, his wife was Asian? Oh, uh, I mean, it it was a thing that happened. I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure that you don't get pumped when you see an Asian in a Batman comic. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I do. <laughs> sure I do. Well, I will say this. I did think that his kid looked... I knew his wife was Asian, and I get that his kid's mixed. Well, actually, I don't even know if his kid is mixed. For all I know, like that could be his stepson. But I was going to be... I was going to say his kid looks incredibly Asian for him not being Asian. Yeah, I noticed the same thing, too. 
So I I don't know I I don't know maybe Sorrentino doesn't know how to draw Hoppa kids. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I'm sure it's uh, not easy, man. Yeah. 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 But anyway, so this, how the story goes after this guy gets back home from a long day talking to the Joker and talking to his boss who tells him that, you know, everybody's tried to make their name off figuring out the Joker and he's broken everybody. What makes you think you're going to be any different? You know, he goes home after a day of work, spends some time with his family, starts reading this storybook to his son uh, as a bedtime story. And he discovers that it's a super twisted story. It's like a happy tree friends kind of thing where it's, it's a storybook it's where, yeah, it, it's, it's happy animals living in Happyville. And then, uh, murderous clown with a chainsaw comes and kills him <laughs> slaughters yeah. them yeah and then he's just like where did i where did we get this book this is ridiculous and you know goes goes to goes to bed and uh has a talk with his wife about how things are going then in the middle of the night he wakes up uh interesting bit of symbolism there during his dream where he, he dreams of a balloon and when it pops, it pops into a Rorschach blot. Right. And he's walking around in his house and then he thinks he's sleepwalking or dreaming or something. And then next thing he knows, you get to the next page. His wife is like, uh, what are you doing? It's already eight o'clock. You got to get ready for work. And he's like, what? I just woke up. Yeah. So like right, right off the bat, you can tell that something is not right in this dude's mind. Yeah. He's uh. Yeah, the the sense of like time displacement is just it's telling. Something something's definitely not not all there. Yeah. So so at this point when you read this Albert, what what were you thinking happened? What did you think was the reason for this? Uh I I, I really honestly did not know what was going. I mean, I knew what was going on, but I did not know what what to expect of the 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 shift in time in terms of his personal perspective yeah um i think i think my first instinct was to assume that yeah i think my first instinct was to assume that at this point in the story he was beginning to go mad i guess or yeah like essentially he was beginning to go mad and i wasn't sure how they were going to pull it off or like you know in terms of explaining what his um descent into madness would would be like or how it was caused but as far as i could tell or yeah as far as i could tell my my presumption was that he was experiencing these time displacements because his sense of reality was was off and yeah ultimately that's what it was so yeah i mean i think i think there might have been a part of me that as i was reading it where i was going what could it be did the joker get the infinity gauntlet maybe he's messing with (laughs) i i was willing to entertain that i was just like "Uh, i don't know like I felt like the most obvious answer was that this guy was like losing his mind, but then yeah. I was willing to entertain the the possibility 
that there might be something clever up Jeff Lemire's sleeve around the corner. <laughs> the Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> That's not even DC, Albert. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> What? He got the time gem and then he snapped his finger. (laughs) And that's why he lost eight hours of his night. (laughs) Yeah, but that that was uh, where I was, what I was leaning towards in terms of the story at this point. Yeah, I think when I was reading it, I, I wasn't sure how he was going mad. Uh, at first I was thinking, I wonder if that book he read, because it you know, clearly harkened back to the idea of the Joker. I wonder if there was something about that book, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. the ink or something rubbed off on his yeah. fingers and affected him. That was, yeah, you're right. That was a thought. science thing. Yeah, that was a thought that I had too. So like up to this point, you know that some, like he's being affected by the Joker somehow. And as a comics reader, there's a part of you that just begins to reach out for yeah. what are the possible ways that the Joker is, like, getting to this guy. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, so moving on, he, he ends up going back to the asylum the next day. He uh, talks again, talks again with the Joker. Um, and a creepy thing here is, is that the Joker ends up telling him a story and it happens to be the same bedtime story that he started reading to his son. And he's just taken aback that the Joker knows this story. So he freaks out, runs to the bathroom. And then when he's in the bathroom, he hallucinates seeing a dude with his throat slit and a Joker smile on his death rictus in one of the bathroom stalls. But it's, it's just a hallucination and, and, um, you realize that in the real world, uh, in reality, the guy was just, you know, taking a dump in a stall. And he's like, what the hell, man? Why'd you open the door? <laughs> you think that's pretty funny, huh? Yeah, I do. Like, I didn't realize that till you just said it just now. Because, I, I mean, I knew that he saw that as a hallucination. And then in the next panel, uh, in the page across from that, you see the guy coming out going, the hell, man. And <laughs> I didn't realize that that was the... I mean, I know that he looks like the, the the dude that he imagined being murdered. But I just thought that that was a dude who just happened to see this guy on the ground <laughs> going, the hell, man. So I didn't, I didn't make that connection where it was like, oh, the dude was in there using the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> and on the following page, I was going to, I will mention this, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So the last page of this issue shows the Joker, and he's has these color pencils, and he's drawing on the wall in his padded cell. And the picture that he draws on the wall is the clown, the same clown from the kid's book story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of, like, what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, as a comic book reader you kind of reach out for whatever explanation you can to make sense of whatever the science of the their universe is. Yeah. So there was a part of me that was like, is he like using hypnosis? 
is he like drawing these like subliminal messages around the building or you know around the place so that he can slowly subconsciously affect uh benjamin's mind that that was a thought that i had did you have that thought yeah i didn't i didn't think that he was uh using some kind of hypnosis necessarily. But I think I just thought there's something that the Joker is doing. Like, how does he, how could he possibly know the storybook that the doctor read to his son the previous night? Yeah. There's gotta be something going on to explain that. And it's just, it's just freaky. And I thought that was really that first, this first issue, dude, I thought was a really strong first issue because it, it sets up the premise and it, it leaves you with just enough to wonder and want to know what is happening and how is it happening? Why is it happening? And what's going to happen next? So yeah. It's like the, the perfect type of first issue. Then uh, issue two, we start off with a pretty extended uh, dream sequence. I guess it's just an excuse for for Sorrentino to draw cameos of all the different uh, Batman rogues. rogues. Yeah, but yeah, there, there's some pretty cool stuff in here. Like there's that the scene where it's a scene where they're in a diner and uh, Doctor Ben and the Joker are sitting down and all the other customers and the people that work at the diner are the other uh, supervillains. And then they, they bring him a meal and turns out to be his own severed head and they stick a fork in it. And like, you just turn the, the page and you see uh, like all these, it's basically his face getting deconstructed and then his brain getting exposed, you know, like it's something that I think you can only do in a comic book, you know, like this doesn't yeah. work if you try to, do it as a movie. Maybe if you did an animated feature, you could animate something like this. Uh, but certainly in live action, it's hard for me to to fathom how someone could do a scene like this in live action. Yeah, without, without making relying it look heavily bad. on special effects. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's it's a really cool scene that just speaks to the the visceral power of comics, which is why I love comics, man. And then you, he wakes up and it turns out to be a dream. Uh, and then the, the key scene here, I think, is number one at the breakfast table. His, his son is playing a, on a smartphone. He's playing a game that's based on that crazy killer clown that the Joker knows about from that story. Yeah. And then he, he, told, he asks his dad a, a, a joke. He's like, hey, dad, want to hear a joke? What is it? What? And the joke is, why don't cannibals eat clowns? Because they taste funny. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a bunch of sequences in this book that have these silly little jokes. And of course, uh, the doctor, he doesn't like it. He gets a little upset that his his young son is telling these uh, grim jokes. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, he, he ends up going to the asylum. Funny thing here is, when I first saw the page where he, he drives to work and he arrives at Arkham Asylum, it doesn't look like any version of Arkham Asylum I've ever seen. Did that yeah. stand out to you? Uh, I didn't realize it until you just mentioned it just now. Because every, But you're right. Every version of Arkham Asylum that we've usually seen, has it's always portrayed as almost gothic. Yeah, totally you know? gothic. And this 
this version of Arkham Asylum just looks like a very real hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Know? It's very real. I thought that was interesting. I, I don't yeah. know why or how they decided to make that choice um, or if that was intentional or not. But it's it definitely was just something that stood out to me. So he, he ends up going to see the Joker again. They start talking. He's trying to talk to him about, about Batman. But the Joker somehow turns the conversation back to the doctor. And he asks, Ben, why don't you tell me something about your first time with Anna? Anna being the name of his wife, which is... Shocking because how would the Joker know the name of the doctor's wife? Right, and, he, right. and then he brings up his son Simon, which is which freaks him out even more, freaks out the doctor even more because you know it's the Joker. How does he know the names of his wife and kid? That's right. pretty freaky. Yeah, I wouldn't want the Joker to know the name of my family members. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't even want him to know my name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think if if I were a psychologist, I, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to try to win the respect of my peers by psychoanalyzing the Joker and writing a journal report. Yeah. <laughs> it just it, it's just way too risky. I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, sure. I'd I'd rather just languish in mediocrity. Yeah. Give me like just regular crazy people that no one cares about. <laughs> 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 See, this is a scene, when I came across it, I was, uh, it creeped me out, man. It creeped me out. This, this is when I started to realize, okay, this is, this is a horror comic, you know? Like, this isn't just uh, your typical superhero comic. This is actually a horror comic because this crazy, you know, Hannibal Lecter kind of dude, the Joker, he, he's knowing all these crazy intimate details about this guy's life. What's what's more horrifying than some crazy serial killer psychopath knowing the names of your wife and child? That that's pretty freaky, man. Mm. And and the thing is, is that because at, up to this point, uh, the the story hasn't explained how the Joker knows that. It's like he just has this power. It, it gives him a level of menace that. It's I don't think he often has. Yeah, it's otherworldly. It's it's almost uh, supernatural where you're just wondering, Yeah, how does he know what book that Dr. Ben read to his kid? How does he know the name of Dr. Ben's family members? How does he just know this stuff, man? Like that's, that's the kind of – those were the things that were making me uh, scratch my head in a, in a good way. It made me want to keep on reading the story. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I guess me and you did have a pretty different reading experience. Like, I mean, I get it on the face of it that that would be disturbing. I guess if I was faced with with a real experience uh, that was similar to that, I would definitely be disturbed. But I guess I just didn't put myself in his shoes as I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think thinking about it now, in in a way, this this book does still kind of touch on one of Lemire's themes. You know, his, the theme of family. Yeah, because this this guy, 
Dr. Ben obviously loves his family, cares about his family. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and then I feel like the interactions up to this point that we've seen show that um, he is a family man, even even if he is a little bit maybe too obsessed with his, his work and his job, he still clearly loves his wife and son. But because he's dealing with the Joker and you've already seen like hints of madness in his own life, in his in his own mind, you're kind of, or at least when I was reading it, I was kind of concerned as to what would happen to him. Um, you know, I wasn't, I don't think I was, I don't think I lost myself in his story so much to the point where I was like on the edge of my seat or anything, but I think it was more just the point that I see what Lemire and Sorrentino are trying to do in terms of like, manipulating my emotions and trying to make me feel and in this case you know I typically don't like having my emotions manipulated but in this case I was willing to allow it so I could buy into and enjoy the story right right. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagined you sitting there fuming at the thought of like how dare you make me feel things (laughs) (laughs) oh that's that's pretty accurate that's pretty accurate man uh, yeah then um, later on he, he goes home and he uh has dinner with his family and and then i think that's when you start to see things even uh get even crazier where his, his mind just imagines both of his his family members uh sick with the uh, joker grins on their faces and, right. and yeah he, he's getting disturbed he uh tries to to go downstairs and and go back to work but there's that two-page spread where he's walking down the stairs and you see all these different uh fragmented panels of all the all these random panels that had been in the issue and in the previous issue previously uh and you just see them like sprawled sprinkled throughout i thought that was a pretty interesting uh or in pretty effective two-page spread just to show that his mind is fragmenting and falling yeah. apart and he can't tell what's real or what's not real and I, I think in retrospect um it's a pretty big clue as to what's going on in terms of how he perceives things because i think when i read it the first time the way that i saw it was i didn't really know what to think other than uh you know he's he's losing he's losing his mind or things are getting jumbled up. But now that I'm going over it again, it it really does feel like it's a clue as to how he can't differentiate uh, reality from his own, like like there are certain memories that he has and certain things that are just his imagination. Right, right. I mean, there was, I do also want to mention something in the previous scene that that was kind of another big clue Mm-hmm. Um, this conversation that he has with this therapist mm-hmm. and one of the things that they established in the previous issue was um, the you know I guess his boss this lady his boss was telling him oh you've only got like three weeks to work with the Joker so when we start when we first start reading the story it it's as though he's on this clock he's you know we, we get the impression that he has three weeks to sort out 
the Joker, and then he's going to be pulled out of there, and he's not going to work with the Joker again after that. So, um, you know, in his mind, that's, you know, I guess there's a sense of urgency. But then in this in this second issue, when he's talking to his boss, he mentions that, uh, you know, you know, that he, that the clock is ticking. He only has a limited amount of time left. Uh, and he mentions the three weeks and just as, you know, his boss is about to say something, uh, she gets cut off. But what she essentially says is, well, the, the impression that you get from what she says is three weeks, but it's already been, yeah, she gets cut off. So, it's another like clue as to as to the fact that something's wrong with his perception of of time. Yeah, you the know? Infinity Gauntlet really messed him up. <laughs> <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah. So you you want to go ahead and just spoil the next crucial scene, like the revelation. Oh, you go for it because I'm, I think it's a little fuzzy for me. Well, okay, I'll I'll go for it, but you you fill in any blanks that I might be missing. How's that? Yeah, yeah. So the revelation at, at at, at a later point when Ben is talking to the Joker, the revelation is he hasn't been working with the Joker for three weeks. It's been three years. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, as, you know, as the Joker is, like, forcing him to confront this reality, he's going over, you know, all the details that, uh, Benjamin has been, you know, hearing from, from him, you know, all these things that Drew mentioned earlier, where it was like, how does he know these things? And the Joker's other big revelation is, like, he knows these things because Benjamin has been telling him these things over the past three years you know Mm -hmm. so that's why he knows these things yeah yeah and the other thing that is revealed is the joker says i know anna and simon's names because you told me months ago you told me right after anna left you and took your son with her right 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 yeah Yeah. so apparently he's just been imagining his family all this time yeah and, and at I that point, say, he just breaks down. Yeah, and I will say that on the following page where um, the way that Sorrentino draws it, where he redraws all these scenes that were happening with Benjamin, but without his family. It reminds me of Garfield minus Garfield. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do like the layout of it and how he draws all those ha-ha-has on the peripheries of the panels. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a cool effect. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of those things where I think Sorrentino's always had an affinity f- for doing something uh, flashy like that, that. and yeah. in this in this instance, it it really really works. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, yeah, he Doctor Ben ends up running home, and when he gets home, you see that it's true. Everything the Joker said was true. Like his home is empty. Yeah, uh, his family's gone, and. He's he's alone. And, yeah, and in that moment, he he finally cracks and he starts painting his face like a clown. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I might have said happened. that a little. I might have said that a little too matter of fact, but I mean that's what happened in the book. <laughs> yeah, that, that is literally what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so that takes us to to book three, where he he paints his face and he's obviously gone mad now. Uh, he goes back to the asylum. And this is the part where I think, uh, for me, the third issue, I think the the plot was probably a little bit weaker for me compared to the first two issues. Mm-hmm. So what ha- what happens is he, he ends up knocking out the guard on duty in the asylum, and he goes to see the Joker, and they, they kind of have a a heart-to-heart, which is, I think, a crucial scene in the book. Uh, essentially, for, for, for me, when I was reading it, what I what I got out of it was it, it was kind of a, a callback to the killing joke, uh, where it's that idea that one bad day can really, you know, change everything. One bad day can, can drive anybody mad. And, and I don't think the Joker actually says anything exactly like that but the idea is that uh benjamin has been broken by the world and and now the only choice he has left is to break it right back and make everybody pay yeah and yeah. and you know essentially that's that's the i guess the the joker's gospel you know it's like yeah this is how the world is and and this is how we respond to the world so now let's go make everybody pay you know yeah it's yeah. it's a pretty messed up uh way of of living so they end up uh causing a massive inmate breakout at arkham the joker uh gives dr ben the address of where his wife and son are are uh are living right during the confusion of the breakout you know there's it's basically a prison riot with a bunch of Batman's rogues gallery. So you know that eventually Batman is going to show up and he, yeah. he does. He uh, shows up when Joker's with, with Ben. Batman goes after Joker first. You know, they have a fight. And this is, this is the part that I thought made me uh, scratch my head because Joker and Batman are fighting. And then Ben sees the uh address of of the of his wife and son and he's he starts running to the address to find them and batman's got joker on the ropes and joker tells him you can either beat me up or you can you can uh save that man's family you know you know he tells batman that the guy's gonna go after his uh estranged wife and son and and batman thinks about it for a moment says he kicks Joker in the face and he says, I'll find you. And then he runs off and chases Ben. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I thought that was weird. I was like, dude, why didn't he just tie him up? Why did he just let him go? He could have stunned him with a taser, mess up his muscle reflexes. He could have, he could have totally done any number of Batman things to incapacitate the Joker or tie him up so that he couldn't get away. But instead, he just said... <laughs> I'll be back for you. And he just runs off. What the heck, dude? <laughs> the second best option couldn't have... That couldn't have possibly been the sec- the only best option. <laughs> yeah, a kick in the face. 
Come yeah. on. Threaten him and then let him go? Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> what is, what's up with that, man? Can you explain that to me, Albert? Break it down for me. Uh, I mean, the way I read it was... Um, I'll find you wasn't as much so much a threat as it was just the way I read it was him telling himself I don't have a choice I have to stop this dude now I'm just <laughs> gonna have to risk I'm just gonna have to find you later so it was him Batman essentially affirming his confidence in himself to find the Joker <laughs> how I read that so it, you know just him speaking out loud going. I'm going to go after them, but I will find you. And, you know, but even then, like if that's his cost benefit analysis is to like, I'm going to let the Joker go and I'm certain that I'll find him, but I'm going to risk that in that period where I, between when I do find him again and when I let him go. And like, if the risk that I'm going to take is that the number of people that he's going to maim is going to be minimal in that time frame. <laughs> That that that's not a very smart Batman. <laughs> <laughs> He's done the calculus, man. He's done the calculus in his mind. <laughs> it's like this guy Ben, so far in his life, he's never killed anybody. The Joker's probably killed hundreds of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Batman has done the math and he thinks it's a better idea to go after Ben. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a you can make the argument that Batman doesn't want this guy. It's not just about these two people getting harmed, but you can make the argument that he doesn't want Ben to become a killer. Cross, yeah, to become a killer and cross that ultimate line, corrupting himself forevermore. Okay, so, yeah, Joker's already corrupted, so what's the matter if he kills more people? Yeah, I mean, no they're difference. just people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unless you're the people that he killed. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, like, I guess you could make that argument. I, I don't know if that personally is something that I, I buy, but, like, that's it's certainly the more noble argument than he's an idiot who just <laughs> who <laughs> took, took a gamble and decided that he's going to stop this dude and save these two people and he's going to risk the Joker not killing that many people. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a part of the story that I have no real defense for. It just made me scratch my head. Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately Benjamin goes and he, he finds his wife and his son and, you know, he's crazed and... He points a gun at them, and he, and Batman doesn't even make it there in time. But what ends up happening is he's threatening his wife with a gun when his son shows up, and his son tries to make a plea with to his dad, and he's like, in the moment you you turn you realize that, and I think this is where the book loses me a little bit because. In that moment, the little boy is there, his son is there, and he's wearing clown makeup too, and he's, you know, appealing to his dad. And then, you know, in that moment where he sees his son with the clown makeup, he breaks, you know? And I, I don't know why the 
the, yeah, that's the part that where they lose me a little bit, which is I, I don't get why the kid was wearing clown makeup. Okay, so that that was in, that's an interesting thing to point out because the way I interpreted it when I read it was that a hallucination. Was he hallucinating his kid with clown makeup? Yeah, that that's what I thought was happening because okay. I, I I thought that he saw in his son uh, the, when he saw his son with clown makeup on that, that just shook him to his core. And I didn't think that his son, like literally in reality, put on the makeup. It, it's kind of ambiguous, but that was what I thought was being communicated. I, I thought it was Ben's madness causing him to see that his son was looking like a clown also. Okay. See that, that, yeah, in, in this case, that's, that might just be me failing to interpret symbolism. But, yeah, it was definitely a thing where I was like, I'm not really sure what happened there. But, yeah, like, it, it, that makes sense if he's so uh, insane that that's what he sees in his son. Okay, all right. Because I think what's happening is that Ben, at this point, Ben realizes that he's become like the Joker, right? That Ben himself has become like the Joker. But when he sees his son, and he sees his son in in clown makeup, that's when he think. That's when he gets this realization that the Joker has poisoned me. But if if I kill my wife in front of my son, that's going to poison my son as well. You know, and yeah. and. Yeah. What, like, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that he's not gonna kill his son, you know. He's crazy, so maybe he he was gonna kill his son. I don't, I don't know that either for sure. Yeah. But it it feels like just seeing his son, and imagining his son with the clown makeup on. It's like he doesn't want his son to end up being like him, you know. Like he or or like the Joker. Obviously, he doesn't want uh that madness, uh that. That to insanity to infect or perpetuate into his son, yeah, yeah, and and I I did think it was interesting because um, when Batman finally does show up, there's a, a panel of Ben hugging his son, but you don't actually see Ben's son's face, except in the next panel where it looks like Ben's wiping off uh, one of his tears from his son, but his son is still in, in the makeup. But it, it, it feels like it's it's almost ambiguous because um you see you see Batman in the background uh during their hug, but you don't see what what uh what Simon, the boy, actually looks like. Mm-hmm. And the only time that we see Simon is when we're looking at him from Ben's perspective. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the panel where you see Batman, we're looking at that panel from from Simon's perspective, right? So it, it definitely adds a layer of of ambiguity. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it it matters enough to like change our understanding or interpretation of of the story, but I did think that the ambiguity in this climactic moment. Um, it it definitely stood out. Like it, it was something that when I read it. it it didn't just. Well, I didn't just gloss over it, but then I got to the panel where you see uh, Batman raise a fist. So I just imagined Batman punching Ben while he was hugging his son. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I just saw that, and it, is, it does look like he punched him in the back of the head. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, at, at that point, the story ends with Ben. He's the one in the asylum now. He's wearing the orange jumpsuit, and then... His old uh, supervisor is talking to him a little bit. Mm. Uh, they have a little conversation, and the final couple pages, there's a their their conversation is basically the voiceover for the end scene, and the ending scene is just during the daytime out in the city. You see uh, the Joker giving a balloon to a little girl. Yeah, <laughs> so Joker's a, still out there. It's a pretty menacing looking Joker too. It is. It's yeah. a really menacing-looking Joker, and then you get two final pages that that uh, go back to the children's story that was referenced earlier in the in the book, and yeah, that it that provides the the thematic ending to the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, after that third issue, a couple months after that issue came out, they released one-shot issue that serves as a coda so that this is batman the smile killer and they included it in the hardcover thankfully yes yeah. so we can get the whole thing now let me ask you something albert if, if the story just ended with those three issues would it have been any different like did this uh final did, did batman the smile killer affect your reading or enjoyment or appreciation of the work overall? Um, I, so I'm, I, I have to say that after having read smile killer, I'm not entirely sure what the tie in is. Like it's, it's probably something that's more symbolic than the, the, the killer smile story uh, mm -hmm. because there were definitely like there was already quite a bit of symbolism in the smile uh, the in killer smile but when I was reading uh, the smile killer there were things in there where I was just like okay I mean I don't know if I'm supposed to take this as in well yeah I don't think this is in continuity but I'm really not sure. I found myself wondering what what they were trying to communicate in this story. Um, so, I, in brief, the synopsis is that you start the story with a young Bruce Wayne. And this Bruce Wayne, he's watching that same kid's clown show that... Uh, or no, he's watching... A clown show with a clown that looks like the... It's the same clown, clown. I think. Mr. Smile. Okay, so Mr. it's Smiles. the exact same clown from the kid's story, but it's a TV show. So this young Bruce is watching this clown, and he's he's having this full-on... Seemingly, what is, what is this full-on conversation with the TV, even though, you know... That's you, not how you, TVs work. Yeah, that's not how TVs work, and in all likelihood, the... the you know, if the TV is saying something, it's 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 making generic statements that could really be targeted towards anyone, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, 
the he's having this conversation with uh this young Bruce Wayne is having this conversation with this television clown and as the story progresses like it flashes back and forth between uh these moments of Bruce Wayne as a kid and Batman out in Gotham in the real world mm-hmm. you know so he's he's tracking down the Joker and he comes across this uh this this hand puppet this paper bag hand puppet picture and it triggers a memory in him of uh this character that he created Mr. Pouts and mm-hmm. we go back again to the flashback and we see that Mr. Smile is talking to young Bruce Wayne and he's telling him to draw, you know, draw this character. And when he does finally draw it, the Mr. Smile hates, hates Mr. Pouts. And he basically says that he's told, he's basically said he's told Bruce Wayne never to draw this character. And here he's drawing it again. So, he, you know, he has to punish himself. And Bruce Wayne picks up the scissors and he's aiming it towards his eye. (laughs) Yeah, he's about to maim himself or blind himself, you know, when his mom walks in and she she sees this and she just smacks the heck out of him, you know, and uh, she just tells him to stupid kid. Yeah, she's just like, what is wrong with you? Um... So, as the story goes on, um, Batman is chasing the Joker, and he begins to hallucinate. He begins to have his own personal breakdown, and eventually everything begins to dissolve around him, and when he comes to his senses again, he's, he's now no longer Batman chasing the Joker. He's Bruce Wayne in an insane asylum. And right next to him is Benjamin. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're having this conversation, and Bruce Wayne is convinced that something's not right in this world. Someone's messing with him. So he's telling himself that the reality is that he is Batman, and this reality, and this what, what he sees around him at this point in time, uh, this asylum... Uh, that's, that's the illusion, you know, something, yeah, someone is, someone is plotting against him and putting him in a position to believe that he is hallucinating, that his life as Batman is a hallucination and that this, you know, him being in this insane asylum is a real thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's almost so, like uh, you could imagine thinking it's uh, the Scarecrow's gas causing him to hallucinate and Clayface is portraying all these people to convince him that he's gone crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah, they even say at one point, like, they they flash back to him. Or no, at one point they, they reveal that Jim Gordon, who he knows as the commissioner at, in, in his life as Batman... In, in this world, Jim Gordon is his therapist. Yeah. You know? So he's... Bruce Wayne is just... 
he's like livid about this, you know, like he doesn't know why he's here or what, what, what the hoax is, but he's just pissed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I will say there was a part of me that thought maybe it's Mysterio. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Mysterio's messing with Batman. <laughs> First it's the Infinity Gauntlet, now it's Mysterio. Dang. You you are imagining some crossovers here, dude. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a heck of a twist? That, that would be a totally unexpected twist, man. I, I definitely would have been surprised if yep. that had happened. I would not have expected that whatsoever. <laughs> yep. Speaking of twists, so what ends up happening is in order to try to shake Bruce Wayne from his delusion that he's batman they call in a guest and that guest turns out to be his mother and you know if you know anything about bruce wayne it's that his parents were both gunned down in an alley when he was a kid so this is something that they intended to shake him back to reality but you know he's he he's still I think momentarily he's he 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 begins to remember he begins to have these memories, so he he looks back at his life and he realizes that his father was in fact killed, but in in this version of his memory he was the one who killed his dad. Yep. Yeah. He killed and his father's smile. He, he is the smile his... killer. He killed his father's smile, exactly. <laughs> and so the rest of it is uh, Bruce Wayne trying to come to grips, like trying to logic his way out of this situation, trying to understand whether the life that he has in this asylum and all the things that they've told him about who he is and what he's done, and whether that's the real life or whether his life as Batman is the real life. And he's mm-hmm. just like, you know, begging and praying to to the powers that be to give him just any sign. And eventually he just, you know, he just decides to go ham and he can't like handle this. And he starts beating up the guards. He like jumps out the window and, you know, he's in the rain and he's just like begging for a sign, something to let him know that, you know, that, that his life as Batman is real mm-hmm. and he looks up in the sky and there's a bat signal and he just gives a smile and he runs off into the night and this is where it begins, you know, him as Batman or at least that's the last line now where to begin. Yeah. Um. So yeah, this is definitely one of those stories where I'm not, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's definitely not continuity but I, I don't know um, yeah I, I'd really have to stop and think about how it serves as an epilogue to killer smile yeah do you have do you have um, any thoughts on that because it's nothing I don't really have anything formulated too much yeah. in regards to exactly what makes this an epilogue to uh, killer smile. Like, I, guess I feel it's... like the only thing that related to Killer Smile was the fact that Benjamin was in that 
imaginary prison with him. Well, I was going to say that plus also the the uh, psychological aspect of the, of the storytelling where you're not sure if what you're seeing is real or not. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like how in the three issues of Killer Smile, when we were following things from ben- Benjamin's perspective, there were things where that that we as the reader saw and until we got to a certain point in the story we didn't realize that they were just hallucinations right and when right. you when you recognize that and you go back and and look at the scenes earlier in the story then you're like oh he we're seeing the story from Ben's perspective so some of these things that are happening like he's basically an unreliable narrator because we can't trust his own eyes you know we can't trust what he's seeing or because yeah. he's he's losing his mind yeah and and then in this epilogue chapter you kind of see the same thing happen with with batman where yeah he's even like the memories of him as a kid um where he's watching mr smiles and and here's the voice on tv telling him to, telling him to stab his own eye out with a pair of sharp scissors you know like it it it's at the point where I wonder uh, or I question whether that's actually supposed to be a memory or if he's just uh, hallucinating and dreaming of something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I think and, with with this story, with a Smile Killer, it's there's definitely more that I question, if only because what it, I know of Bruce Wayne and yeah. what I know of Batman... This goes like, against a lot of what we know. Exactly, exactly. Like, it, I'm already in a position to question what's happening in the story because of what I know from of Bruce Wayne and what I know of Batman. So, um, yeah, like, uh, there's definitely more. I I did have more of a sense of like I I where I wasn't really sure what was going on in that last story in Killer in Smile Killer. Yeah, there's definitely even, a lot more ambiguity in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Even even the way it ends, even the way that the smile killer ends, it it ends with you kind of scratching your head, wondering if all of that really happened to Batman, or was, was yeah. he just imagining it, or was this supposed to be a continuity where where Bruce Wayne is He's just some crazy, crazy guy? Tick? <laughs> right, right. No, totally. That's yeah. So it's. It's something that I'd have to ponder more. Um, yeah, it, it's it's harder for me to say for sure. Yeah, but but here here's what I'm thinking right now, um, and I don't even know if this is uh, the proper interpretation or what I'm supposed to walk away with. Um, but if I had to, if I had to write, uh, you know, an essay or something to explain what I understood about the story i think i would point to how the smile killer serves as an epilogue or a coda to the to killer smile by presenting uh the flip side of the equation so with with killer smile i guess the theme of that um even though it's a psychological horror story i guess in terms of the character of the joker uh what we are supposed to see is that 
the thing that he's always kind of stood for, uh, you know, this idea of, of uh, insanity and how the world can break you. So your only option is to break the world back, which is a, a crazy philosophy to live by because how can one man try to break the world break the world <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's what that's why he's crazy um yeah yeah he, he's he's uh and we talked about this a little bit when we did our joker episode talked about all the evergreen joker stories mm. and, and it, it feels like a lot of the best ideas about the joker in comics tend to revolve around him being this force of nature mm. like, like something that cannot be contained and cannot be tamed and can even infect other people as we see in the smile killer with Ben's madness. Uh, so I think if I were to look at the smile killer, I would look at it as the idea of, of Batman being uh, obsessed with his mission, you know, to, to rid the city of, of the, evil that took his parents' lives. And there's that, there's even that scene where um, right before he decides to go ham on the guards and break out, he, he thinks to himself while he's sitting in, in the cell, you know, he's thinking about how he is Batman and, and how if, as long as he believes that he's Batman, nothing can ever stop him and how he's always been the Batman he always will be the Batman, no matter what happens to him, no matter what lies they tell him, he's going to be Batman. So in, in that sense, Batman himself is a force of nature also, you know, and and when he busts out of the prison, like it, it doesn't matter um, how all the evidence that he sees with his eyes or, you know, that we believe that he sees with his eyes, it doesn't matter all that evidence that stands in the way of Batman being real in this story, like if you were just to look at the story and you had no inkling of other Batman comics, you would just think, yeah, this Bruce Wayne guy, he's a total, uh, you know, nut. nut. He's a nutcase. <laughs> he, he imagines he's some guy, Batman, when yeah. he's a kid who killed his dad when he was young. And, you know, he clearly grew up to be a very disturbed, deranged individual. And he's in an asylum for a reason. Right, right. But, but because we know that. We He's know Batman. we know the Batman story. We know the Batman mythos. We know uh, what Batman is all about. And one thing about Batman is that he will never stop being Batman unless he dies. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I I hadn't considered that. I do think it's another interesting thought is that is that there there's there is something powerful about the idea that the idea of Batman, like you said, is a force of nature that is bigger than any kind of constraint, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the weird thing about the way that this story, um, the way that the story portrays it is, it also kind of makes you think that... Batman's crazy? Yeah, there's something, right? <laughs> like, in <laughs> any other... In any other situation, if, like, someone believed that, like, you could look at that level of conviction as something, like, noble, but you can also look at that as 
a deep delusion <laughs> where yeah. you're just like, if I met someone who was like, who's that resolute about like their madness, I, I just, that would, I would be very concerned about that. You wouldn't want anything to do with that person, man. You would yeah. back away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. It's, it's, no, that, that's, I think stuff. that's a totally fair point because, um, those are the kind of things that you kind of have to think about if you think deeply about superhero comics, right? Like who who the heck actually would use all his money to buy batterings or build batmobiles and just yeah. uh, you know spend every night fighting people, beating people up? Yeah, he's not a dude that deserve it, but still. Yeah. He's not a dude that has like superpowers that puts him in a position to use his, you know, gifts to, to you know, it, it, it's not like he has some sort of divine otherworldly gift that puts him in a position to go well, out into the world and save mankind. He did mankind. have the privilege of wealth. <laughs> but it's not really a power, it's, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, because we live in a world where rich people do exist, and as far as I know, none of them dress up like rodents and, like, beat people up every night. <laughs> yeah, that that is a good point. That is a very good point. <laughs> yeah. So it, it is interesting how this coda actually probably gave me more food for thought than the original three issues alone would have. I think when Killer Smile ends the way it ends, like that probably would have been a satisfying ending in and of itself. But with the Smile Killer, it feels like they gave me a little bit extra something just to leave me feeling uneasy at the end of the whole thing. That's a good way to put it, because it, it does, like, I know it ends on this note where, like, Batman smiles, and he goes off into the night, and he's like, I am Batman, <laughs> but, you know, he's still in his um, asylum, asylum jumpsuit. jumpsuit, you know, <laughs> so I, I think uneasy is, like, the perfect way to put it. There is something about it that's like, I don't know if this continuity is one where he's really the Batman that we know or whether he's just a crazy dude. (laughs) (laughs) I think the more I think about it, the more I appreciate and enjoy this kind of offbeat ending. And not, not just the final page of the story, but I mean the entire smile killer issue like that. That's a pretty interesting way to try and end a story because if they had just ended it with issue three of Killer Smile, I felt like that would have been complete and satisfying in and of itself. But by adding on this coda to it, this kind of uh, you know additional epilogue that might not have necessarily been needed, but the fact that it's part of the story, it it gives me more to think about. And I, I got to say, I appreciate and enjoy that. At least it's, it's not like other dumb comics where you read it once and 
you never think about it again and you just forget about it eventually. Because mm, mm. I, I think I will actually, I will, I will definitely remember this story, you know? Like this is something that even though it has its flaws, it's going to be something that I'll remember and it'll be something that I know I can read again and try to extract more entertainment from it, whether that entertainment is just from the simple thrill of enjoying the comic book story or if the entertainment arises from trying to think about it or, or ponder some of the ideas. Right, right. Hmm. So I'm going to propose a question that you put on our list here, but I think you're you're probably more prepared to answer this than I am, but do you feel like this we we did an episode about evergreen joker stories mm-hmm. and so I'd have to ask, do you in your opinion, do you feel like this was a do, belongs in the pantheon of evergreen joker stories? Yes, sir. I, I strongly feel that it does. Uh, if you asked me if, if this is one of the best superhero comics or anything like that, something lofty like that, I'd probably hesitate. But if we're just strictly talking about the Joker, then yeah, this is the best Joker story I've read in a long time. I mean, give me this over uh, anything that Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo did with the Joker. Give me this over three Jokers. Give me, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I would way rather read this than, than three Jokers. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like, for sure. I, I would rather read this than three Jokers, for sure. <laughs> I would rather read this three times than read three Jokers. <laughs> Funny yeah. thing is, for uh, those of you who, who are listening, when... When I ordered uh, this comic, I ordered three copies of it because I ordered one for Albert and I ordered one for Stranus. <laughs> so when we when I put up the picture on Instagram, I was like, this is the only three Jokers that we need. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. Do you think it's an evergreen Joker story? Um, I think what, go, going into this, I... I didn't feel quite so much that that was the case, but having discussed it with you and uh, hearing your appreciation for it, I'm not. I don't think I'm ready to say that I would include it in my uh, Evergreen Joker stories. But I am now in a position to more more in a position to entertain it now than I was before we entered the podcast. I'd so have to really saying that you don't think I'm a complete total idiot. Because <laughs> I'll take I'm that. Saying... <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that you've given me food for thought, and I'm really, I would really have to stop and think about it and really ponder it even more to to come up before I could come up with a decision. That that's that's what I would say. I'll take so, it, man. I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. You affected me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I penetrated your mind. Gross. <laughs> uh. One more thing is, 
I like this story as a as a horror comic, especially uh, those first three issues, uh, three issues of Killer Smile. Like I, I really do think that that is a that's my kind of horror comic because, uh, I guess I don't know if we've really talked about horror comics too much in our in any of our episodes, but I feel like horror is a really really hard genre to pull off in uh, comic books just because of yeah. the way the medium is. Uh, maybe we talked about it a little bit when Shane has uh, shared Walking Dead during our recommendation recommendations series. Um, well, I, I, my recollection is that this is a conversation we've had offline, like not, uh, not on the podcast. But yeah. It's, it's certainly a sentiment that I've heard you voice uh, several times. Yeah. Yeah, so it's because it's so difficult to do horror in in comic books. I, I feel like the only way to really do it well is to add a psychological element to the horror. And mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that that element has to be having an, a literal psychologist in the story, <laughs> but I'm just saying like there's got to be something in the story that that uh, messes with your head a little bit. You know, like there's got to be something in the story that makes you question uh what's happening and i think that the i think that killer smile really pulls that off uh effectively because you don't know what is going on with ben you can't trust what he's seeing and you know that he's in peril because he's talking to the joker and you believe that his family is in peril because the joker knows who they are and then when the twist happens where you realize but the only reason his family is in peril is because he's crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's that's something that I can enjoy, man. Like it it makes me smile. <laughs> <laughs> A family in danger? What could be funnier? <laughs> oh man. Any final thoughts, Albert? Um no, no. I think I think we've had, this was a good, really good discussion, and uh, I'm glad that uh, we cracked it open. And because we just we just got our copies like in this past month or so, so um, I, I've still got a pile of comics that I haven't read. So I didn't know when I was going to get to it, but you know this this episode was a good opportunity to finally read it and uh it was an excuse to crack into it (laughs) exactly exactly uh if anyone has any comments or questions or you know if you've read it and there's something that you want to add to the discussion you know feel free to email us or dm us on instagram uh between the gutters at uh, between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you know our instagram you can uh, dm us and you know we will uh, if we have enough, we'll try to, you know, maybe we'll do a mini episode where we, we answer some questions or something. Yeah, um, that'd be fun. Yeah, uh, it'd be cool to see what your guys' thoughts on on uh, Killer Smile and Smile Killer are too. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, with that said, I just want to thank our sponsors, Barbara Morning <laughs> Oat Crunch Cereal. <laughs> Barbara's Morning Oat Crunch Cereal. A heart-healthy start to your day. Pour yourself a bowl. (laughs) 
<laughs> why are you laughing, Albert? Why are you laughing? You've been holding out on me. You're keeping all that sweet, sweet Barbara's goat crunch money to yourself. I haven't seen a nickel. <laughs> Give me a shanka donka, man. Shanka donka, y'all. Peace out, everybody. Thanks for listening. Peace out, guys. Peace out.